Uh, we're in the book of Acts, uh, and uh, the, the book of Acts is the record of Jesus' uh, first followers spreading out throughout first century Africa and Asia and Europe. Uh, but tonight, we have come to a, a hard passage. Um, it's kind of a hard story to hear. I think it's often misunderstood or misrepresented, maybe. Uh, but it's in there for a reason, <laughs> and I think that there is, the reason is something pretty powerful. Um, and there's a lot to get to, so I'm going to kind of jump right into uh, our passage for tonight. Uh, we're picking up a little bit later than where we left off last week. Um, what you need to know is that the disciples have been going around Jerusalem. Um, they've been spreading word about Jesus' resurrection, and a number of believers have been, um, the number of believers has been growing expo- exponentially. Okay? So this is Acts chapter 4. We're starting in verse 32, which should be up on the screens. All the believers were in one heart and mind. No one claimed that any of their possessions were their own, but they shared everything they had. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and God's grace was so powerfully at work in them, uh, them all, that there were no needy persons among them. For from time to time, those who owned land or houses sold them, uh, brought the money to the, from the sale, and put it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to anyone who had need." Now, you might be wondering, Phil, all of this sounds great. Why did you preface it and say this is a hard passage? Just hang on. Uh, Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, who, whom the apostles called Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, sold a field he owned and brought the money and put it at the apostles' feet. Still sounds fine. Now, a man named Ananias, together with his wife Sapphira, also sold a piece of property. With his wife's full knowledge, he kept back part of the money for himself and brought the rest and put it at the apostles' feet. Then Peter said, Ananias, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you have lied to the Holy Spirit and have kept for yourself some of the money that you received from the land? Didn't it belong to you before it was sold? And after you sold it, wasn't the money at your disposal? What made you think of doing such a thing? You have not lied just to human beings, but to God. When Ananias heard this, he fell down and died. And a great fear seized all who had heard what had happened. Then some young men came forward and wrapped up his body and carried him out to be buried. About three hours later, his wife came in, and not knowing what had happened, Peter asked her, Tell me, is this the full price that you and Ananias paid for the land? Yes, she replied, that is the price. Peter said to her, How could you conspire to test the spirit of the Lord? Listen, the feet of the men who buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out also. At that moment, she fell down at his feet and died. Then the young men came in, finding her dead, were like, what is going on in here? And they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear seized the whole church and all who heard about these events. It's a great little bedtime story for kids, right? Uh, I don't like this passage. <laughs> I don't know anyone who gets excited about having to teach this passage. I don't know anyone who says, you know what my favorite Bible story is? Just hang on, Acts 5. Um, But I think if we can push through our initial repulsion to this passage, uh, I think it actually has a lot to say. And what I hope that you hear tonight is that God wants to free you from the tyranny of what other people think of you. God wants to free you from the tyranny of what other people think of you. Um, Now, like I said, the first part of that story sounds great. And, And the biggest thing that I want us to see from that first half of the story is that in the Acts community, They were able to be so radically devoted to one another because they were empowered by grace, not because of their own efforts to meet any law or or out of any sense of obligation. Um, They enjoy this incredible communal living uh, because of grace. 
at the time that this story was written, there, there are many communal groups, um, especially Jewish groups, that all required, if you wanted to be a part of them, they, they all required you giving up all of your possessions. Otherwise, you would be kicked out or not allowed in, or your food rations would be withheld. So uh, it's the kind of the exact opposite of what Luke describes as going on here, which is totally voluntary. It doesn't say that each was required to give up all. It says that no one considered anything they owned to be off limits to the rest of the group. And as they saw needs arise, uh, they would share what they had to meet those needs. It clearly says from time to time when needs arise, they would sell their land. So they're clearly not being forced to give up anything to join or to be a part of this group. No one is forcing anyone. It's all done out of love and grace. Luke emphasizes this even further when he says uh, that line, there, is no, there, were, there was no needy among them. And uh, I don't know if you noticed this, but in our uh, generosity prayer that we say every week, one of the things that we pray towards is that, is that it could be said of us that there is no one in need among us. And this is exactly where we get that from. But that phrase, there was no needy among them, is the exact same phrase that's used in, in Deuteronomy 15 that Luke is alluding to. Deuteronomy is the fifth book of the Old Testament. So it came... Thousands of years before the events that are happening here is the final book of the Torah, uh, the law. Um, And in Deuteronomy 15, God has commanded Israel uh, that there should be no needy among you. God says in Israel, there should be no one who's poor because he tells everyone to give generously. And he also sets up the situation where every seven years, everyone's debts are eliminated. So because he said, you should all be generous people. And because I've set about this, uh, I put in place to make sure the cycle of poverty doesn't happen. Um, There should be no one in need among the people of Israel. Here in Acts 4, instead of should be, there should be no one in need among you, Luke says they've achieved it. There was no one in need among them. And Luke is clear it's not because of this law that is referenced in Deuteronomy or under any other compulsion, but it's because, as Luke says, the grace of God was so powerfully at work in them. They simply shared what they had and sold what they, they could to care for each other. The Acts community goes beyond the law because grace empowers us to do way more than we think that we can. And rather than trying to earn God's love by keeping some command, uh, the Acts community just acted out of grace. They believed that because of Jesus, their standing with God was unconditional. They had nothing to prove. Their belief and trust in God's love spilled out into love for one another. And that shift caused by grace empowered them and can empower us to go way beyond what the law might require. Why is that important? Well, here come Ananias and Sapphira. If you've heard the story before, you might have heard the man's name as Ananias. And I might accidentally say that, but I learned this week that that is not the correct way to say it. It is Ananias. So that's why I am struggling to say it the right way every time. Uh, It's more for me than for you. Um, Here come Ananias and Sapphira. Barnabas, a guy that we meet, gives this gift acting freely out of grace to meet needs. He he sells a piece of land and brings all the profit to the community. Um, Watching that happen seems to become some sort of tyrannical law or standard to meet in the hearts of Ananias and Sapphira. And so they sell their land, they keep some of the money, and they give the rest of the church, but they either say or imply that it's the full amount that they got for the land. And so they, they don't die because they didn't give all of the money to the church. That's a common misconception. They could have done anything with the money. Peter is really clear in verse 4 of chapter 5. He says, didn't the land belong to you before it was sold? 
and after it was sold, wasn't the money at your disposal? They're under no obligation or compulsion to give to the community any of the money. <laughs> they could have kept all of it. They, they had a lot of options. They could sell their land and keep it all. Um, they could say, hey, we sold our land. Here's some of the money that came from that. Or they could have just said, here's some money. Like it doesn't, they didn't need to give all the information that they apparently gave. But they were so worried about keeping up appearances that, and they were so worried about what the rest of the community might think if they didn't meet what Barnabas did that they willfully deceived the community into believing that this was the entire amount from the land that they sold. They didn't die because they held back money. They died because they cared more about public perception than being transparent. And in doing so, they lied to the community and to the, to the spirit of God. The rest of verse four, Peter says, you have not lied just to human beings, but to God. Now, I don't know about you, but that, that should cause us to pause and and probably tremble a little bit. God is so serious about how we treat one another and is so protective of his people that how you treat the community, the bride of Christ, is how you treat God. Speaking of being protective, um, I've always been a pretty protective person of people I love, especially when I'm responsible for them. Um, When I was younger, I was like, probably overly, but super protective of my little brother and sister and any of my friends who were smaller than me, which in elementary school was most of my friends. Um, I can't tell you the number of altercations I had on playgrounds (laughs) protecting my little brother. Um, Sometimes I would get in trouble and my dad would ask me what happened and I would tell him like, this kid was picking on my little brother and so I threw him to the ground. And my dad would be like, would ask my little brother, is that what happened? And I was always so scared that I was going to get in trouble, and he would just say, good job. If anyone's hurting your brother, good job. (laughs) Um, So I've always had this kind of instinct to protect the people I love, which obviously is not unique to me. That's a very human thing. Now that that, that protection instinct is on my kids. And I don't think I'm a helicopter parent by any means. Some of you might disagree if you've hung out with me. But I'm protective. A few months ago... um, one, one morning, I, I took the kids to uh, a McDonald's play place, which you might be familiar with. Um, for a while, there were a number of us who were meeting up there Friday mornings to let our kids play. And uh, this one morning, we were at this play place that is like three stories, which is really cool. But um, on the middle story, my son Apollo was playing. He was having the best time. And this family showed up with a bunch of kids that we didn't know, which is fine. But there was this little kid that was very hyper, He was having the best time of his life, and he came down the slide. The slide's at the third story and comes down to the second story. Not important information. I don't know why I'm telling you that now. Uh, Just replaying it in my head and giving you a play-by-play. Anyway, um, the kid comes out of the slide and is running at full speed and then goes horizontal, like just jumps in the air like Superman. He's floating in space and plows right into my kid. And he starts crying immediately. I think Apollo was like so psyched to see someone flying towards him that he was just having a great time. And then instantly he was thrown back. And I don't remember climbing up the play place, but I was there. All of a sudden I was there. And luckily I kind of realized what was going on before I got to the strange kid, the flying kid. I just went to my kid and picked him up and I was just so mad that I had to like take a few minutes, minutes, a couple breaths. It wasn't minutes that I was just up there like, oh, just you wait. 
But I was mad. I was seeing red. I was angry. I wanted to protect him. And I think when we see someone that we love being attacked, it's very normal for us to act, right? To act to protect. God is doing the same thing in this story. He's acting to preserve the integrity of his beloved people. And in doing so, he says, don't cheapen grace by lying to make yourself look better. I think that's one of the messages here. Don't cheapen grace by lying to make yourself look better. But we, we face this temptation all the time, right? I mean, we live in a culture that glorifies perfection. Um, even when on many levels, we know it's artificial. So much of American culture is trying to make yourself look better than you are. And there's this myth that if we don't have it all together, um, if we don't have, if we have needs that we can't meet ourselves, if we have wounds that we can't seem to overcome on our own, then either there's, we're doing something wrong or there's something fundamentally wrong with us and we're somehow less valuable. And I think this posture is maybe the most common in church. Even though the key tenet of our belief is that we all need Christ, that we are all made for a relationship with God and for each other and that on our own we're insufficient, we'd rather keep up appearances of independence and self-sufficiency and faithfulness. Just being here tonight for some of you might be keeping up an appearance of faith for you. Like I'm here every week, I'm faithful. But how do you live when no one else is watching? Or how do you present how you live when no one else is watching? The integrity by which we live our lives is what this passage calls to light. We cannot lie to the spirit of God. But still, we try to keep up our appearances. And, and where that shows up is different for everyone, right? Um, maybe you try to keep up appearances in your sexuality or, or your work or your finances or your education, your political stances or uh, your sobriety, your relationships, maybe your marriage or your parenting. We try to keep up appearances in all these places and we, we try to project to anyone and everyone that we're good. It's good, we're fine, we're in control, we've got this, everything is fine. As followers of Jesus, keeping up appearances like that basically says to God, like, I'm gonna trust you with most things, but this little bit of me, this bit of my heart, this I need to control. This I'm gonna to keep to myself. I'm not gonna trust you with that. I mean, I did this for years with, with an addiction that I was dying from essentially. Well, that's a bit extreme. I was dying on the inside. Um, I don't want to mischaracterize, but uh, I basically was saying, I think this part of me is so messed up and so dirty and so wrong that I'm not gonna let anyone else know about it. And I'm certainly not going to let God deal with it. Like this is just my thing to deal with on my own. This, this passage is telling us that this is, that's no way to live. God is challenging us to not be a false advertising campaign for him. To not say that we follow Jesus and then deny grace by lying about the reality of our lives. God is calling us to live lives uh, empowered by his grace. God wants you to be free from the tyranny of what other people think of you. You will never meet everyone's expectations or demands for you. And that's okay. You don't live to meet others' expectations or demands. You're part of the community of believers. You are part of the community that we read about in Acts. You are a part of that legacy. The grace of God has been poured out on you and fully affirms you as a son or daughter of the infinite, transcendent creator and sustainer of the freaking cosmos. What could you possibly add to that? 
What could you possibly add to those credentials by keeping up a fake appearance? What lie could you tell about yourself that is somehow better than that? In uh, 2 Corinthians 12, Paul says, um, he shares that he begs God to remove some uh, thorn in his side from him. That's what Paul describes it as, a thorn in his side. We think this is some sort of physical defect or or moral struggle that Paul endures. Um, It's something that he might be tempted to diminish by projecting a false image of himself. And he pleads for God to just take it away. But he says that God replied with this to him. God said, my grace for you is sufficient and my power is made perfect in weakness. Paul says, therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weakness so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weakness, in insults, in hardship, in persecutions, in difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. So, if you want to live a life empowered by God, essentially all you have to do is accept grace. Own your weaknesses. Don't try to cover them up. There's no better way to reflect Christ to the world around us and to each other uh, than to display how God is working in and through your weaknesses. God doesn't love us because of what we do or how successful we are or how much we don't fail. God loves us because he created us and redeemed us in love. And he wants to proclaim that love to the entire world through us. Often, I think we get caught up in, in striving to earn, earn God's love, right? But he's saying, like, it's free. You already have it. You already get it. I love you. I will never stop loving you. So let's live in that truth. Let's show the world something different by living in that truth. We don't have to earn anything. We already are loved. Our hope and prayer is that this church... Um, like the community in Acts, that we can become a model community here in Centennial and South Denver um, so that when people come to experience life with us, when people come to, to experience um, laughing and crying and living and failing and succeeding with us, that they can't help but sense that there's something different about this community. Not because we're perfect or that our lives are perfect, far from it, but because we're marked by grace. We're marked by not needing to be perfect. We're marked by understanding that we are already infinitely loved and cannot possibly add to that by anything that we could do or uh, in success or failure. God is challenging us to not be a false ad campaign for him, to not say that we follow Jesus and then deny grace by lying about the reality of our lives. God wants to free you from the tyranny of what other people think of you. Don't cheapen grace by lying to make yourself look better. Instead, let's be honest and vulnerable about the reality of our lives. And in doing so, we'll we'll shine a light in the powerful ways that God's love and grace are transforming even the darkest, scariest parts of who we are. That transformation, that hope, that light is what the world most desperately needs to see and to experience from us. May we be a community that is so profoundly characterized by grace that our lives uh, display the magnificence of the glory of God to a world that desperately needs to see it. Would you pray with me? God, thank you for um, 
hard stories that remind us of absolute truths. God, thank you that you that you didn't wait for us to get ourselves put together to be worthy of your love. But because you are love, you move toward us first. God, thank you for the grace, uh, the infinite gift that your grace is at melting our hearts and um, enabling us to reflect you to the world. God, I pray that whatever parts of our hearts we are trying to hold back and cover up and in whatever ways we put masks on, I pray that you would dismantle our ability to hide. God, I pray that we would walk into the light even with the things that we can't bring ourselves to trust you with. God, I pray that you would shine through our weaknesses. We love you, God. Amen.